It's always good to be here with you all. Yeah, good to see some people I saw last time and some I didn't see, and it's just good to hang out. In the midst of this, I love this series, this series in the words of Jesus. Um, I think it's affectionately called the Red Letter Series. A lot of people don't know what that means. Uh, like, what is a red letter series? But it, it brings back a little kind of fun memory. When I met my wife, um, I, I was working at a Christian bookstore, and she actually came into the bookstore and needed to buy a Bible because she didn't have one. And a friend had said, you got to go buy a Bible. And so she came up to the counter, and I had seen her one other time before we had met, but this was the second time that we had met. And I said, what kind of Bible do you need? And she said, a Ryrie Study Bible. So this was like in the mid-'80s, so early-'80s. So this was the Bible that everybody had back then. Some of you might have remembered that. So I'm like, okay, um, is a hardcover okay? She said, yeah. And I said, well, do you want a red-letter edition or a black-letter edition? She said, what's the difference? She didn't know. So I said, well, the red letter edition, the words of Jesus are in red. And the black letter edition, they're not. She only had one question. She said, is there a price difference? I said, yeah, the red letter edition is 80 cents more. She said, I'll take the black letter edition. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to marry that girl. She's cute and frugal. And what's... And it's going to read the whole Bible, not just the words of Jesus, but anyway, that's what I think of whenever I think of red letter. So I guess we're in this series about the words of Jesus, which I think is a really fun uh, way to be able to look at Scripture. In fact, if you know people that are really like offended by the Bible or don't want to read things, I think one of the best places is to go, hey, find a Bible that does have red letters and read a bunch of those words, and you probably won't be as freaked out by some of the stuff that is in other parts of the Bible. It's a really good place to start. Jesus obviously said some amazing things, and I'm excited to be able to, to, to jump into this today. Um, we're going to talk about judging. So if you've got a Bible, or if you've got one of those Bibles that just passed out, or you want to open up your device and turn to it, Matthew 7, just a couple verses we're going to look at. Matthew 7, 1 and 2 is the place we're going to jump in. Some of you know, because I think I shared this story a couple years ago when I was with you once, that in 2018, I took the first sabbatical I'd ever taken. Now, in, in ministry, I'd been in ministry like my whole life, but had never taken a sabbatical. And that's not a good thing, because I was really, really tired. I was burnt out. Um, I was experiencing at that time what some refer to as the dark night of the soul, which just means Jesus seems, God seems, everything seems very absent, very hard to connect with God, um, even to the place of a crisis of faith. My mom had passed away the very beginning, almost the first week of my sabbatical, and you just go through a time, you know when you lose someone really close to you, you just start asking all these questions, eternal questions. I'd never asked. I mean, I'd known the Lord for all these years, but my mom was now gone, and I was in this really difficult place. Well, in the midst of these months that we head off, my wife and I were asking, what, what can we do? And we thought, let's go somewhere beautiful. And I was thinking, I need to go somewhere where I can connect with God because I'm not doing a very good job connecting with God here in my everyday life. So we knew of this little place. It's a little island called Iona. Have you ever heard of Iona? It's a little island off the coast of Scotland. If you ever get a chance to go there, you need to do this. And pilgrimages are um, scheduled to go there. And so we're like, let's do a pilgrimage to the island of Iona. That sounded like the perfect way to reconnect with God in the midst of this sabbatical. So we found a group that actually goes. And there was about, I don't know, was there 30 people or something on this pilgrimage that we decided and signed up for? 
And we go all the way to Scott. So first we went to England, and got, I got even more burned out walking around England. But then we've worked our way up to Scotland. We're in Glasgow, Scotland, where, the, where, where it was meant to begin. And then you've got to take literally a shuttle bus to another island, and a ferry to another island, and then a shuttle bus, and then another ferry. So it's like shuttle ferry, shuttle ferry. And then you finally arrive on this little island that's like one mile by two miles, this tiny little place that's known as a thin place. Um, in, in spiritual circles. In other words, God is just supposed to be so accessible on this little island. So I was so excited to be on that island. And uh, it was a beautiful place. We spent eight days, I think, on that island. And I was looking around, just kind of searching for God. And while it was a beautiful place, I still struggled in that place, trying to find where God was and trying to connect there. But I just had the sense we were supposed to be there. Well, we took the ferry back, the shuttle, the ferry back, the shuttle, and now we're in the last morning of our trip um, and uh, back, in, back in Glasgow, Scotland. And we were having breakfast at the hotel before we were about to say goodbye to all 30 of us. And we were sitting across the table from this woman who was also on a sabbatical. But she was at the end of a sabbatical, a year-long sabbatical she had. And this was the very last event that she was doing. So I thought, wow, this is cool. Because I'm at the beginning of this time. She's at the end of her time. I need to get her wisdom. And so I said, what do I need to know about a sabbatical and what I'm supposed to learn? And she said... Look for way markers. And I'm like, okay, that sounds really important, but I have no idea what you mean. And so I kind of asked her, can you, can you clarify a little bit? And she did, and she clarified what over her sabbatical time had been way markers. Now, again, way markers are like signs or posts, right? If you're out on a hike or mountain climbing, it's the way that you know which way to go. But she was meaning it figuratively that in the midst of her sabbatical, she had had certain way markers that were kind of pointing the way. So she described what hers were, and I'm like, that still sounds really important, but I still have no idea what you mean. And I thanked her, and we went our separate ways. <clears throat> so later on that morning when we left that hotel, we took off and we were going to take another uh, part of our trip, which was like a three or four day um, uh, what do you call those, excursion, I guess, to um, the Scottish Highlands. Again, trying to be in, just out in creation and in beauty once again. And we were trying to meet in the town, and there were no signs. We had the directions of where we were supposed to pick up this little bus for the tour, uh, and there was n no obvious way. We thought we were in the right place, standing there with our suitcases. We were the only ones there. And when we were standing there, a young lady walks up and she said, is this the place for the, I think it was Timberbush tour that's going to the Scottish Highlands? We said, well, we think so. We think we're in the right place, but we're not exactly sure because there's no sign. But we started talking to her and uh, she was from Australia. You could tell from the wonderful accent. She was in her 20s and we just started talking. Her name was Kate. And we said, so what brings you here? And she told us a little bit about her trip and what she was doing and came to find out that she was a student at, uh, I think it was the University of Adelaide in Australia. And I said, well, what are you doing? And she said, I'm working on my PhD. And I said, oh, okay, interesting. She was really young, and I thought this is, you know, to be a PhD student at that age. What are you working on? And she told me what she was working on. And then I asked her, what's your dissertation going to be on? Like, what's that area of focus if you're going to get your doctorate? I was really curious what her area of focus was going to be. And she said, I'm doing my dissertation on the grief a person feels when their spouse or partner loses a child. And I thought, wow, that's, that's huge. Um, and I say that because 
in what I do in my ministry with soul leaders, I work with a lot of leaders in churches and they experience a lot of loss. And so I'm always talking about grief and loss and the importance of helping people process that. But I thought that's such a unique thing, the grief a person feels when their spouse or partner loses a child. I said, why did you choose that subject? And she said, because my partner lost a child and I went through incredible grief. I wasn't expecting that answer. And I didn't know how to respond to that at that point. And I realized, though, within probably that first day, I had found my first way marker. I didn't think I was a judgmental person. I still don't think I'm a judgmental person. But God needed to show me some things along the way that caused me to go back to the words of Jesus in some new ways. Matthew 7, these two verses that we got up here that you're looking at, and I, it's good that you're looking at it because I want them to just be kind of embedded in your heart, in your mind, in some new ways today. I think we're in the midst of a time where we have possibly seen more judgment in the last couple years than maybe in our lifetimes. And I still feel judgment just rolls out and comes out from all kinds of places. And here's the, the crazy thing. It's coming from places in ways that I didn't normally expect it. I see judgment coming from, for example, when I look at the church and the church is meant to be a light and the church is meant to be a place where people can find hope and love and acceptance and such, I end up seeing sometimes something very different than that. And that breaks my heart. I don't know what to do with that. Um, in neighborhoods, I've seen it. I, we see it in businesses. We see it in families. We feel this polarization that's going on in many places in our society that's a polarization that's unlike anything I've ever seen. And I don't know what to do with that. And I realize that there's an attitude underneath the surface, and I think it has a lot to do with this issue of judgment. So here's what Jesus says in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of the third chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think you've been spending some other time in some of these verses of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, so this is good that we get a chance to do this as well. Jesus says this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is an important verse. So I, I wanted to see how judgmental I am. Um, so in the midst of my sabbatical, when I got back home, and I'm kind of wrestling with this thing about what's going on in my own heart, um, I remembered that I had taken an online test uh, er earlier, and I found it again. And it's called Project Implicit. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, but some really big league universities, Harvard, I think Stanford's involved with it. Um, so this is a really uh, statistically validated kind of test, Project Implicit. In fact, if you want to do it, you can go to implicit.harvard.edu and do this. There are 14 online implicit association tests to basically see how judgmental you really are. Yeah, you know, so if you like having fun, there you go. 14 tests, so you can kind of see. So I'm like, I, okay, I'm going to go in and just see, because I remember the one I had taken earlier, like years earlier, had been around race. 
I was trying to ask myself, am, am I judgmental around the subject of race? And I knew that I was years ago, that I had taken this test and I came out judgmental, but I'm like, that was years ago. I'm way better now. I'm not judgmental of people of different races. I'm gonna nail this test. So I pull up the race IAT, it's called for implicit association test, and I take it again. And, and it's meant to like get beyond your conscious awareness. So they show you quick pictures and you have to make quick decisions about it, okay? So I thought I was doing really well. And then you get to the end and it shows you your result. And basically it said, Michael, you have issues with black people and people of color. It didn't say in those words, I don't remember exactly how it said it, but what it said is, yes, you still have issues where you are judging people of other races. That freaked me out, because here's the deal, I didn't think I was. I thought I had like healed from that, like I'd grown up, like I'm more mature now and I don't have issues, and yet this test that's very valid is telling me that I have major issues. So now I'm feeling really discouraged about this place, okay? I, and, and I need some support. So a, a week or two later, I go to our uh, small group. We have like a home church small group that we've had for like 10 years. People that know me really well and know us, and I just decided I need to share with this group. So I shared a bunch of what I just shared with you right now, kind of this journey I'm on. I'm realizing I'm judgmental, and I want to live like Jesus said and not be judgmental, and I'm trying to figure out what that means. So I kind of just share my heart this night with our group. And when I'm done sharing, one of the individuals sitting there who's, who's been part of the group for years, he just looks at me and he goes, you know, I think we're supposed to judge. Um, we see judgment in the Bible, and, and I plan to keep on judging others. I think we're supposed to judge. And I'm kind of sitting there now going, okay, I just got judged for not wanting to be so judgmental. This is getting harder not easier as I'm going down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out what to do with all of this. For, literally, so for the last three years, I've been on a journey trying to do what I think Jesus said to do here. And it's not easy. And yet now I feel like I, we are living in the midst of times that is making this reality even more difficult than it was three years ago. And I don't know what to do about that. So I thought when I got asked, I'd preach a sermon about it, and maybe this would help me. Because everything else is not helping a whole lot up till now, helping me be uh, a less judgmental person, it seems. So um, there's a lot. There's a lot packed in here. And I know we're all coming at this. I'm not you. You're not me. We're all looking at things differently. And I don't want to make any assumptions about the things that you feel or think. I just want us to be able to look at the words of Jesus and say, how do we live that? How do we figure out what did that mean and how do we live that on a daily basis? So when we get to this verse, do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not judge sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? I mean, you can't get too much clearer. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Now that part doesn't sound quite as clear to me, the second part. Um, when you get to that second part, track with me here for a second, okay? Do not judge, seems pretty clear. Or you too will be judged. Let's think about the second part. Who do you think will be doing that judging? If you're a judgmental person, who will be doing the judging? Any thoughts on that? You will. Okay, we heard Jesus, you, and other people. And those are probably the three most logical answers, right? But we didn't all come up with the same, okay? Because I came from a background that really thought, yeah, if I judge, I'm going to be judged by God. Or, you know, God's going to judge me if I'm a judgmental person. But I wonder... 
I wonder if there's some other ways of understanding this or looking at it differently. Uh, a few weeks ago, I got invited into a cohort, I guess you'd call it, of a grant-funded uh, coach training program. I do a lot of coaching in what I do of people in ministry and churches and such. And it's on what's called positive intelligence coaching, or PQ, PQ coaching for positive intelligence. And I got invited into this, and we formed a little cohort, and there's five of us from our ministry team at Soul Leader that are a part of it right now, and we're working on it to try to figure out how we can increase our positive intelligence and become better coaches in what we do. Um, and it deals with our mental fitness, and this mental fitness that's a measure of the strength of your positive mental muscles, which this program refers to as your sage. Can you get to the place where you're thinking in ways that you're sage? Kind of like think of biblical wisdom would be a good way to think of that. Versus all the negative things that come in and cause us to uh, you know, do, look negatively. And they call it our saboteurs. And there are 10 saboteurs. Okay, So the measure of your mental fitness is called your positive intelligence quotient. And this has been research that's done with 500,000, like half a million uh, participants. And what, they, what it's shown is that PQ can be the best predictor of how happy you are and how well you perform relative to your potential. So this sounds pretty important, okay? How happy you are and how well you perform in the thing that you do with your, with your life, okay? And then there's these 10 saboteurs I told you, okay? Um, and the saboteurs that we have, it's kind of in our own lives and our own minds, they start off as guardians when we're children. They help us survive both real and imagined threats to our physical and emotional survival as children. But by the time we're adults, we don't need them any longer. But they've become kind of invisible inhabitants in our mind. Our saboteurs' patterns of thinking and feeling and reacting become soft-coded in our brain, literally through neural pathways in our brain. And when these neural pathways get triggered, we're hijacked by our saboteurs and feel and think and act using their patterns. So what do you think, now that I've told you a little bit about these saboteurs, what do you think is the number one saboteur that according to this program, with research of half a million people, afflicts every single person? There's a name for this saboteur. Anyone want to guess what it is? It's good. We're close. It's called, what are we talking about today? It's called the judge. The judge. Which technically is, yeah, yourself. You're judging yourself. Interesting, isn't it? So, like, research is even showing us now of the way that we judge ourselves and how that keeps us from becoming the person that we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. To talk about it in the language of this morning, the person that Jesus wants us to be and become. The judge finds faults with self and with others and with circumstances. It causes much of our disappointment and anger and regret and guilt and shame and anxiety. And it's also the one saboteur that activates your what's called an accomplice saboteur, which is like your other favorite one of choice. Mine's called the stickler. I'm a perfectionist, okay? And my second one's the controller. So when I'm not doing well, what do I do? I got, everything's got to be perfect, and if it's not working well, I'm going to control everything to make sure that it does. And if I don't, I'm just going to judge myself until I get to the place where I think I'm supposed to be. I'm my own worst enemy. And I don't like to believe that, but when some of it, like the assessment, shows you 
of what you do. And you can literally go on. If you, um, if you Google kind of positive intelligence, you can go to a site. Uh, Shirzad Shamin is the author of this. And you can actually take a test, and it'll tell you what your 10 saboteurs are. So if any of you are interested in that, giving you these other resources this morning if you want to spend some time doing that. But yeah, our self badgers. We can badger ourselves for past mistakes or even our current shortcomings. Or maybe it's a, uh, directed at others and focuses on what's wrong with others rather than appreciating the people that are around us. Uh, and gets into inferior, superior kind of comparisons. Or if it's not judging ourselves or judging others, maybe it's just judging circumstances, right? What's going on in our life? And it insists a circumstance or outcome is bad rather than see it as a gift or as an opportunity. So a couple thoughts. Um, you know, what's wrong with me? How do I judge myself? What's wrong with you? My tendency to judge others. What's wrong with my circumstances? And then I feel guilt or regret or shame or disappointment that comes from that judge place and anger and anxiety gets instigated because of this. And there's all kinds of lies that come out. Things like, without me pushing you, Michael, you're going to get lazy and complacent. Or without me punishing you for mistakes, you will not learn from them and you're just going to repeat them. Without me scarring you um, about bad future outcomes, you will not work hard to prevent them. All kinds of things. The judge is the master saboteur and the original cause of so much of our anxiety and distress and our suffering and the cause of many relationship conflicts. I mean, just think about that. Think about marriage, family, parenting. Think about friendships, the way we approach each other. This is why I feel like this is so relevant right now because we're still in this almost post-pandemic heightened time where everybody's trying to figure out where are we going to go from here? How do we recover things? How do we recover relationships? How do, how do churches come back? How do we recover financially? Many of you have been affected in your jobs and in your careers. So much relies on this. And yet, I feel like we're at a time of heightened intensity with our attitudes toward other people that we're being more judgmental rather than more lighthearted and loving, right? Like, how do we support each other during these times? Do not judge, or you too will be judged. So who do you think will be doing the judging? Probably us. Probably us. You're, if you judge others, you become the kind of person that judges yourself more harshly. You become the kind of person that judges other people more harshly. To me, that's great news because it, what it means is we don't have a God who's walking around waiting for us to screw up so that God can judge us. That was my default. When I read that verse for decades, I thought that if I judged, God was going to judge me, and now I'm kind of living in this place of judgment, and I'll never get out. And then I just kind of spiral in a sense of shame and guilt. What if we realized that judgment is far closer to home than that? That literally we're just waiting to judge ourselves or to judge other people and living in a place of judgment, and we got to get out of that. The second verse, verse 2, says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Think about that. How easy it is when we're projecting judgment on someone else that we can put that same kind of judgment right back on us. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Hmm. 
So how do you participate in each of these areas? And I want you to do just, just a little self-assessment here right now, okay? So let's just talk about these three areas that I just brought up. First, judging ourselves. What does that look like for you? Do you judge yourself? Maybe we do, but you don't know it. Like I was saying, I just didn't know it. Because literally every day presents your, itself with multiple opportunities to actually judge yourself. What's going on in your life right now that you might need to go, you know what, I need to just give myself a big hug rather than judge myself. I need to be able to share with someone else to get some perspective and wisdom on this because I'm being so hard on myself. I'm in the midst of preparing, you know, last week of July, uh, my wife and I are gonna be traveling to Denver. We're launching a new training deal within Soul Leader for a new denomination of churches we've never worked with before. There's gonna be about 50 different people there, most of them pastors and some of their spouses and denominational leaders. We've never worked with this group. It's a denomination of Lutheran churches. And I find that interesting because one of the prayers I'd had was, God, help open the door for working with all kinds of churches, okay? Because they don't all look like branches, just so you know. All churches don't look like this. They all, some look real different, right? So Lutheran's are probably a good example of that with a lot of history, right? All the way since the 16th century, the Reformation, Martin Luther. So I was on the phone this week with one of the denominational leaders, and he started telling me about some of the materials he was seeing, and he said, you know, you gotta be careful here, because if you say it this way, all those ones that are like into their Lutheran theology, they're gonna think you might mean this, and then they're gonna just shut down. So now what do you think I'm doing? I'm just sitting there judging myself on the phone, going, I'm never gonna be able to do this with 50 Lutherans in the room. I've never dealt with them before. So I'm literally just judging myself, going, I can't do this. I want to go back and just work with branches kind of churches, not Lutheran kind of churches, because they're just hard, because they have all this history, and I don't know everything Martin Luther said, okay? And I don't even want to know everything Martin Luther said, and I'm just judging myself. So what, you know, what's going on in your life? Literally daily, what things are coming up that you're going to have a tendency to judge yourself really quickly? What about judging others and how easy it is to go there? I don't know about you, but I'm in a place right now where I feel like I need the love and support and community of people more than I have in a long time. Coming through COVID has been extremely lonely and more disconnected than ever for like a year and a half. Now I've got friends and people I hang out with, but I feel like I need it at a deeper level, like a newer, deeper level of connection with people. And yet I'm sensing that most of the people I normally connect with are either now kind of too busy or newly distracted by things in a way that they weren't even before. And I'm not even sure what that's about. Maybe because things are getting kind of back to a more normal flow and workplaces are getting back to normal and family things are getting back. But so I feel less connected with those friends I need more. And so what I'm doing is I'm finding myself judging my friends. My wife and I yesterday were talking, we're like, man, we want to get together with these friends, we want to get together with these friends, but they bailed, they canceled on this, they didn't show up for this, they're not going to that, we've been spending weeks planning, we're looking forward to spending time with them, and they're not there. And so what do I do? Man, those stupid friends, I just need to get some new friends. <laughs> I'm just judging the friends, right? I'm going quickly to places of judgment, not even knowing why they're making all the decisions that they're making <clears throat> about why they can't do all the things we want them to do, yeah. right? so easy to just judge quickly others. And I have to laugh at that, right? I'm glad we can laugh at ourselves a little bit because we're going to catch, our, hopefully today just by talking about some of these things, we'll catch ourselves a little bit. Judging ourselves, judging others. And then what about circumstances? All around us, there are circumstances that we can be judging and trying to 
pretend like we're, we're going to live above it or something, but it's just probably not the case. Um, maybe there's financial stuff going on. That's a big thing going on because of what COVID has done and the pandemic has done, that many people have taken some, sh some huge financial hits. Maybe there's some health-related issues that are going on with you or have been going on. Circumstances every single day. Again, we're always, always facing. What are you doing to maybe judge those circumstances rather than look at the circumstance. And maybe it seems like it's a negative thing. And what if you looked at it with a sense of patience like, I don't know, maybe it's not. Maybe it could be a good thing. Or maybe there's good circumstances going on, but we're too quick to go, oh, I want more good circumstances, when in reality, maybe you could look at the good circumstance and go, I don't know. We don't know yet if it's a good thing, because sometimes a good thing can turn to a negative thing. The point is, whether there's a good circumstance or a potentially negative circumstance, we don't know. We don't know. And it's not helpful to just rely on a circumstance, right? But to come to it with an attitude, with a sage perspective, is what this program calls it, which I kind of love, which to me is just looking at it as the wise person. The Bible describes the wise person in the book of Proverbs. What does it mean to look at things like the wise person rather than the fool is contrasted in Proverbs? And I think we need that right now. We need to be able to look at so much going on around us and say, what would wisdom do to look at those circumstances? How would wisdom treat my friends right now? I, mean, I don't know everything that's going on in their lives. And then how do I lighten up on myself right now, realizing we have lived through one of the hardest times in our lifetimes and maybe in our entire yeah, life. We might not see another time like this. A couple important distinctions, and then we'll be done. Um, one is the word discernment. The word discernment. Because I know some of you are probably thinking, you're back with me, back with the small group, and the guy says, yeah, I think we should judge because the Bible's full of judgment. Some of you are going, yeah, doesn't the Bible tell us to judge? Let's talk about that for a second. There is a healthy alternative to judging, and I'm just going to call it discernment. The Bible doesn't always use that word in that way, but I think it's important. Um, it isn't asking, discernment isn't asking what is wrong with me or you or circumstances, but what is right or good or healthy. See, discernment is trying to take into account something good that you can affirm. Almost like when you try to, like those of you that are parents, right? You know that if you're always finding the bad thing your kid does and then, you know, bringing the time out or some consequences or whatever you do, that's not a healthy way to parent. We want to be affirming in ways looking for the good things our kids do, okay? We need to do that in life as well. Um, an, an example of discernment would be just a dentist, right? After examining you, the dentist tells you the condition of your teeth and gums, okay? Now, how does that feel? If the dentist says to you, you know, let me tell you what I saw in your mouth today and what the x-rays show, okay, there's discernment there. But if you're like, oh, I'm such an idiot for not brushing and, okay, I know I don't floss enough and, I, and you just beat yourself up and all, all this shame comes on, okay, um, not good. Or if you're, better yet, what if the dentist said that? What if the dentist came in and said, can you look at your mouth? Don't you know that your teeth, you need these the rest of your life and the dentist just shamed you? Okay, that's not, that's judging. Discernment is able to say, here's what we see. Here's what we can do about it. What are you willing to do to participate here, right? Objectively, kind of evaluate that. We can still discern and distinguish how things are and avoid condemning people at the same time. 
Can we do that? I mean, let's see if we can just work on that together. So just understanding discernment is important. And then just one, one last thought, this last thing, fear. I just have a feeling that fear plays into this topic so much, this topic of judging. Remember what we said about the judge being a survival strategy? Um, it reduces the chance of being harmed by an unanticipated dangers. Well, where does that come from? Okay, um, I think it's important to understand that. And I love it because every time I go in our backyard, we have a ton of lizards in our backyard. Some of you might as well, like around where you live, right? There's a lot of lizards in the areas where we live. And whenever I see those little lizards, do they look relaxed and calm? Lizards never look like they're like chilling out there in the sun. I mean, they're just always on, you know, they're always on edge, okay? And there's a reason for that, okay? Um, lizards are always living in a state of fight or flight or freeze, okay? Because that's where their brains are and that's what their brains allow them to do, is be in a place of what even today psychologists or counselors or um, scientists might call the lizard brain, okay? That when we live in a place um, where the reaction that begins in our amygdala, the amygdala is the part of our brain that has that fight, flight, or freeze, uh, a place of perceived fear, um, we're always on edge. And when I look at those little lizards in my yard, I wonder, man, how much do I live like that? How much am I living in a place of fear? And where fear is the very reason that I'm so quick to judge. And what if moving out of fear could keep me from being that person that judges or out away from that unhealthy type of judging? How good would that be? Question, what, what command in the Bible is given more than any other? Do not fear. Over 200 times the command is given in the Bible, do not fear. I think there's a reason for that. What if fear becomes sort of the propelling emotion that moves us to places like judgment? It could be one of the causes. I got a friend on the internet, a pastor named Jim Palmer, and he posted something a week or two ago, and it's just one of those things that I copied and, and pulled out because I'm like, this says it well. Jim said this, he said, have you ever noticed how much of religion is about fear? Fear of judgment and punishment. Fear of going to hell. Fear of having wrong theology, fear of death, fear of not pleasing God, fear of missing God's will, fear of not measuring up, fear of God's discipline, fear of losing God's blessing, fear of being found out, fear of Satan and demons, fear of trusting yourself, fear of thinking for yourself, fear of mental health professionals, fear of doubting and disbelief, fear of having struggles and hardships, fear of questioning authority, fear of your innermost thoughts and feelings, fear of sexuality, fear of other fields of knowledge, fear of people with different beliefs, fear of the world, fear of being you. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. Religion too often chooses fear. I just want to encourage us today to move from that place, to move from a place of fear and just knowing we're living in a time that so needs to move away from the places of judgment toward places of love. And the church is the place where that can just happen and flourish. And so many opportunities are just lying ahead for the church to shine and be a light.
God, we ask that you would help us to be discerning of our own hearts right now, um, of whether or not we live too much in places of judgment. There's a reason Jesus said so clearly, so simply, don't judge, don't judge. Because when we do, we become the kind of people who live in judgment of ourselves and of others and of our circumstances. And maybe today we need to just admit that, maybe just recognize it, talk to you about it. Now as we're moving into a time of communion, God, I pray that we could use that time of reflection not to beat ourselves up in fear, which maybe sometimes we do. Maybe when communion comes, it's like, oh, wow, I've kind of failed this way. Or Help us not to go there today. Help us to sense your grace and your love and your acceptance with the same way that Jesus, when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, just found that broken person, the hurting person, the marginalized person, the sick person, and uh, always had love and grace to offer them in that place. So God, if we're judging ourselves wrongly, help us to see that today. Help us to learn how to have some different and healthier perspectives. If we're judging others, God, give us the grace to be a little more patient, take a deep breath, and um, maybe put some words in love, words of love, in place of the words of judgment. Maybe you have some good conversations with others around us about why we're so quick to judge or some things that maybe have hurt us that we need to talk about with some others around us. And then with our circumstances, help us to hold those loosely. Help us to trust you in the midst of all the things that we face every day. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.
So we have communion that is up here on the table to my left, and there are several gluten-free boxes on the first couple of rows, Mark GF. But as we go through this next section of worship, I want you in your time and in your space just to make your way up, grab the elements, and you can work through and take communion as we worship. Um, and then we'll all uh, stand together and gather together in our last song. But as we sing these next couple of songs, you can prepare your heart in your way that you do. And... Um, one of the ways that we worship and why we call communion an element of our worship is because part of the remembrance of what God has done is posturing our heart in the right way and saying, Lord, okay, well, I want to sit myself at the seat of the table where we're remembering what it is that you've done and it helping to reorient and reor reset what it is that we see, the lens that which we see the rest of the world is through the light of what we've received and the love that we have in Christ. So uh, make your way up to the table when you find time over worship. my life you 
life you have been so so good with every breath that I am made I will sing of the goodness of God I will sing of the goodness of God
to you, Father. We proclaim your goodness, your grace, your mercy, thinking of your passage, even as Micah was preaching on your desire for mercy and not justice and judgment, that you're coming and abolishing this fear and saying, I don't desire the sacrifice and justice, but mercy. And so, Father, may we be filled with your mercy and your goodness and your love. May the world know us by our love. May we be marked by that love. Father, forgive us for for wanting to get every little jot and tittle right. And may we just cling to saying, I want to get love right. Help me to love rightly, Father. Our family first, within the four walls of this church. If we can't do it here, how are we going to do it anywhere? So, Lord, help us to love each other, love this community, love our families. And may that be the spark that grows into this wild flame of love that spreads out. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing. In the name of Jesus, amen.